Welcome to the Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Chan, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for the Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. episode, we're really excited to have a special guest who is very busy as a public servant as one of the top constitutional officers for the state of California, and that is the Attorney General Rob Bonta. He was appointed by Governor Newsom when um, the former Attorney General Kamala Harris became Madam Vice President. <laughs> and so we're really proud that he was able to make time in his busy schedule to, to share with us his story. He talks a lot about his family, but an important part of his leadership and his motivation for social justice was really rooted in what he saw growing up in his parents and in his life in the Philippines, as well as his experience living in California. And he references his mom, his dad, and his partner, his wife, who is also a member of the legislature and his family. Kat, I think that was just a very amazing episode to hear not only things about the, the, the AG's public service and his philosophy in terms of how he leads, but also some of the personal stories around family and that's something we all can relate to. I'm glad that we were able to get someone not to even be kind of like cheesy about it just someone so important like making policy and rules that literally affect the lives of millions of people onto this conversation that feels pretty intimate so I'm very grateful that the Leap Podcast was able to have the one and only California Attorney General Rob Bonta. We're really excited to have you join our LEAP podcast today. And Kat and I would really love to hear about your background. We know about your public service, especially now as the Attorney General for the state of California. But how did you start? And, you know, where, where did you where did you come from before you you know found yourself in public service? Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Tammy and Kat. Really honored to be, to be with you. Looking forward to our conversation. And, you know, for me, I, it started in the Philippines. I was born in the Philippines. I was, my mom was an immigrant from the Philippines. And I was the born the son of just incredible social justice activists. I call them fierce forces for fairness. They have spent uh, their entire lives fighting for uh, more justice, uh, more opportunity, more equity, more inclusion for uh, the little guy, for the most vulnerable. And that's the, the home that I came from. Those are the parents that inspired me and are my biggest inspirations, my, my biggest supporters. And, you know, my mom was an immigrant from the Philippines. She came to California for the first time she was 28 years old. She came on a three-week ship ride and landed in the Bay Area. She came to attend graduate school after growing up in Dumaguete, which is in the Visayas, the central part of the Philippines, and then later moving to Luzon, the main island of the Philippines, and living in Los Baños, and then Manila, and going to University of the Philippines at Diliman. She got a, a scholarship to study at the Pacific School of Religion in, in Berkeley. And my my father grew up in Ventura County. He uh, was born in Oxnard, grew, uh, raised in Moore Park, went to community college in Moore Park, then transferred to finish his last two years at Cal. And he was at the Pacific School of Religion. And they, they, they met there. And my dad was, it was in the 60s. Um, my father was engaged and involved in the civil rights movement. He had a friend who was in Selma, Alabama, 
on the ground organizing and listening to the words of this incredible leader who is talking about a more just world and a more equal society and recording those words on audio cassette tape and sending them in the mail to my father who across the country would tear open these packages, listen to these audio cassette tapes and hear these words call to him and move him. And they were the words of Martin Luther King Jr. And he felt he needed to be in Selma as part of the movement. He felt this was a transformational time in our country and he wanted to be part of it. So he took a train ride three days on Amtrak and arrived in Selma, Alabama. He met Stokely Carmichael. He was in church with Martin Luther King Jr. He organized for civil rights, he organized for voting rights. And my parents, after they, they got, they, after they, they, got married. They moved back to the Philippines as missionaries to serve underserved communities. My sister was born first, my older sister, Lisa, and then I was born there. And when when I was born, a dictator was rising to power, Ferdinand Marcos. And exactly a year from the date of my birth, September 22nd, he declared martial law. And as he rose to power, my parents decided that our future in the Philippines was not safe and, and it is not where our future lies. So we moved to California to rebuild our lives, and my parents started working for the United Farm Workers of America. How old were you out. at that time, Rob? Two months old. Two months, yeah. Wow. So I was an infant. My, yeah. my, you know, brought here by my parents, um, looking for something different, um, something better than what they thought the future was for us in the Philippines. And consistent with their commitment to service, they started as part of the lettuce boycott, collecting signatures outside of supermarkets in the Southern California area in LA. We lived in Echo Park, and then were asked to move to the headquarters of the movement, La Paz, in the Central Valley outside of Bakersfield. And my dad worked in the front office with Cesar Chavez. So having earlier been in church with Martin Luther King Jr., he was now working in the front office with Cesar Chavez, setting up healthcare clinics for farm workers in California, Florida, other states. My mom worked in the preschool. My brother was born while we were there in Bakersfield. And we lived in a trailer, our family of five. My parents got $5 a week for their service to the movement. And, you know, it was there where my parents fought for workers who were forced to work in unsafe and unfair working conditions, fought for things like we take for granted, like shade breaks and water breaks and, and bathroom breaks, uh, a fair contract. And, you know, th that's where I came from. Parents who fought for justice, who worked with side by side with other everyday people committed to a common cause with a belief and a dream in a better world and helped make that world uh, that they dreamed about a reality. And I was young at the time. And some of these, you know, these stories were, were told to me later when I was older, when I was able to appreciate them. But I always saw that my my parents were fighting for people who weren't treated right. And that made me want to do that and carry on their legacy. Went to great California public schools in the Sacramento area, was in Sacramento by the time I was in first grade. And uh, my parents told me and made me believe that if I worked hard enough, I could go to college. If I dreamed big enough, I could go to law school. And I was able to do both. And I thought those were both pathways to service for me. And I saw them when they were organizing, ask people with suits, with power, with um, authority, to, uh, ask them to do things that, that helped the people they cared about. Sometimes those people would, and sometimes they wouldn't. And I thought maybe one day I could be one of those people and not have to ask anyone's permission to fight for the people that we cared about and that needed us. And I could bring them with me into the room to make decisions that were best for them. So I dreamed about maybe running for office one day. When was that, Rob? You could talk about when you first went to school. Do you recall when you, you knew that public service was going to be kind of your career path or that you were going to pursue a life and, you know, life service? 
was it in first grade? <laughs> <laughs> when I, you know, when I was old enough to think about career, when I, when I stopped growing at five, nine and three quarters and realized I wasn't going to go to the NBA, uh, which uh, focused more on soccer and I had some incredible doors of opportunity open for that. I, you know, I played competitively. I represented my country for the U.S. under 20 national team. I was a national recruit. So I was able to play in college, be, live my dream of being a scholar athlete, captain my team in my senior year and, and, and loved every moment of, of, of the sport and how it connected me to other people and other cultures. And so I, I guess when I really was started, started thinking about career, you know, not just thinking about, you know, doing well in school and the next soccer game and the next, you know, dance or, you know, whatever the social uh, or party or event was. And, you know, really thinking about what the future might hold. Um, there was never a doubt I was going to do public service of some type. That was that was never in question. That was a given. And I always thought it might be nonprofit sector or working, you know, in government for um, a department or an agency, um, but not it was never about running for office at, in the early stages. And then um, later on in life, I started thinking about it and um, and had the same doubts that other people have about elected office. You know, you wonder, is it is it corrupt? Is it gridlocked? Is it this, you know, the things that some people say about it? And so the only way to learn is to try. And I did a training with um, APOLF with Ron Wong and Lee. Right. That was my first training. I was in the second class of, of the leadership training program in the same class with David Chu. And that's kind of where I started. You know, I came because I wanted to learn more about politics. Maybe I was going to be a campaign manager for a candidate and maybe I'd run, but I needed to learn more about it. And I was super dubious and doubtful um, and worried. I hand wrung the whole time. I was worried about, you know, my privacy, my family's privacy, what it would mean for them and for us. And that's when Ron Wong told me that you're going to be the first Filipino American state legislator in the history of California. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I just thought it was silly. And, you know, he believed in me before I believed in me. And I think we all need people like that in our lives who could push you and support you and care about you and help, help, help you in the challenges ahead to where they might know you should go, but you don't know yet. <laughs> No, I love that. And I I was laughing earlier because I was thinking like this five-year-old talking about his 20-year plan. And I'm like, I've definitely not. We need more of that. And I mean, it's gotten you very far, you know, a dream realized. And, and that is more important than, you know, a dream deferred as unfortunately so many of our community faces. Something that I thought was very interesting when Tammy was asking, like, tell us more about yourself was that you immediately went to your family and looking back on our two seasons, I would say about 90% of folks will immediately, you know, say their name and then like, okay, let me tell you about my mom or like grandma or parents. And I catch myself doing that too. Like I will talk about my mom much more in detail. And then it's like, and then I was born. And then that's the end of my <laughs> preface that as clearly your dream realized there was this path that your parents greatly inspired you on. And how can they not when, as you mentioned, going to church with MLK, being in the front office with Cesar Chavez, does that help you when you are determining your career path? Because personally, I'm I'm just only a little bit younger than both of y'all, but for my friends, they are pivoting very, I would say tremendously in their career. And I see them and it is very difficult going from, you know, maybe nonprofit sector to corporate to healthcare. And they always 
I guess, feel bad of like, I wish I realized what I wanted earlier. And I tell them like, how can you, when you might not be seen in these certain spaces, like how can you see what is possible if you've never thought it was even a reality? So I guess that's my question to you, AG. Like, was it, is family the reason why you were able to see such a much more clear path and you were able to have that confidence to go into it? And then for folks who, you know, Unfortunately, maybe their family isn't supportive or maybe their family didn't have the opportunity to be in that same career path. How do they find this route? And can we ever really be sure that this is what we want? Yeah, all, all good questions. And you know, to your very first point about talking about family, I think a lot of us talk about family because we're less comfortable talking about ourselves. That's not, that's not how we're raised or we're trained. You know, we, we defer or deflect rather attention and credit and share it with others. But, you know, my, my parents really are, it's, you know, I talk about them because they, they are who inspired me. And, you know, I, one th short story I didn't share about is that I, I mentioned how we left the Philippines because of the rise to power of Ferdinand Marcos. I spent the next 14 year or uh, yeah, 15 years going to protests and rallies and demonstrations in California and the West Coast with my mom, who was a fierce organizer for the restoration of democracy and the toppling of the dictatorship in the Philippines. And that's what I did. But weekends, weekdays, I would go with her. We'd grab our, our food from that we would bring as our contribution to the community potluck. And we'd go and we'd raise money. We'd sing songs and we'd talk uh, about what was happening and the human rights abuses and organize. That's what I like. You know, as, as a kid, it's like, oh, I have to go to another one of these things and I'm not going to see some of the other friends I want to see or be able to watch TV or whatever. But, you know, it, it all has a, a impact on you, whether you know it at the time or you appreciate it. And you now my mom was so passionate about it. It was her everything. She would she would do everything in her power to fight for, for that cause, for people she might not ever meet or know. In, in a country, an ocean away. And I mean, it was her country, it's her home country. And that just inspired me that like that, that passion. And so, you know, but my parents, look, they, they when I grew up, I, I, I remember I, I should be an attorney, a doctor or an architect. Like that's what I should be. Those are, those are good careers. Mm -hmm. Those are things talked about those are things you know my parents would be proud of holy trinity for immigrant parents <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally totally and then you know when i realized i had to take organic chem then that was you know being a doctor was off the table and so i i did become an attorney and, and maybe it's a little bit less traditional but there's a whole incredible beautiful powerful strain of asian social justice activists that we don't talk about that are super progressive and on the cutting edge like fighting for change and putting themselves out there and laying it all on the line and you know my mom was was there at the international hotel in san francisco when uh people literally created a circle a human circle you know hands interlocked arms interlocked to protect the, the, the our elders inside our manongs who were being evicted and you know stood their ground literally with police bearing down upon them and evicting the, those that were inside so I'm, I'm lucky i had parents who sort of charted this path of social justice movements but, but they weren't elected officials i i didn't see people in my life in my community that looked like me who were publicly elected officials that wasn't necessarily part of it you know social justice activism grassroots activism organizing people power absolutely a thousand percent but being the elected official, you know, the, the, a person in government, you know, usually we were protesting people in government or asking people in government to see us and value us, and care for us. 
you know, they weren't necessarily our, our natural allies. We hope they would be. We wanted, we reached out with the hand of friendship and partnership to, to inform them and teach them about what we were, what problems we were facing. But there's always a part that you, that, that you're unsure of, you know, it's, it's never a, a clear path. And in the end, you know, it's, it's, I guess I'll say it's, it, it's each person's life. And, and I always encourage people when you can, I know it's not always possible uh, to do what you love. I have that privilege. I have that joy. But again, you can't always choose it, but as much as we love our parents, we're living our lives, our parents' lives. Our parents have dreams for us. And I, you know, I think they'll always be happy if we're happy and we'll always be great at what we do if we're happy with what we're doing and inspired by it and, and, and feel that it's more than a job, but it's a mission. And that's what my job and that's how I feel about my work and that's why I chose this path frankly you know thankfully my parents have been so proud of me they've been my biggest supporters and cheerleaders along the way not everyone has that you know I talked to David Chu my my great friend whose parents are he's he said you know maybe when you retire from being San Francisco city attorney you can finally become a doctor or something like that you know he's got such an incredibly distinguished uh, career but you know that pressure is always there but I, I think sometimes we need to sort of just be willing to withstand it and push for the thing that's going to make make us happy and that's something that's fulfilling that's that's mission driven and that we love to do if, if that's something that we can do well aj you talk about your parents being your inspiration you know i i, I don't think i'll i'm alone in saying that you've been an inspiration for many people we talk about family and in, in terms of leadership a lot on our podcast many of our guests have brought up not only their parents but their their partners their children we've had mother daughters on the show that talk about how their chill their children or their daughter or son have been inspiring them in terms of their leadership and how their leadership has changed especially in our digital age rob can you share a little bit about how you your wife is also a public servant and a elected member um, of the California legislature, how leadership discussions or how it shows up in, in your family. You're a father of three and you spend a lot of time with young people. This is not just the first time that you're talking to us, but you've talked, you've spoken to us in other forums and in person before the pandemic, you know, and I feel like for me personally, as a mom myself, uh, my kids are going to be, you know, bragging about how they were in the same room with Ron Bonta, the first API or Filipino. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how you share leadership stories within your family and with young people specifically? Yeah. You know, the people you just talked about, that's my, that's my core. That's my, that's my crew. Those are the folks that give me strength, my parents, my partner, my kids. And, um, lucky to have parents who were inspirational leaders in their own right. You know, Mia is my partner in life, my partner in service. We met when we were 17 years old. We couldn't have been from more different worlds. You, you know, grew up poor in the Bronx, New York, both parents from Puerto Rico who moved from Puerto Rico to New York City. And she moved around, you know, lived in 13 places in 16 years, wrestled with housing insecurity, food insecurity at the end of many months. She remembers opening up the fridge just to see peanut butter and celery and her mom would tell her that they're going on a special diet for a little while to shelter her and protect her from the fact that they couldn't afford to fill up the fridge and with other food until she uh, was able to have the resources to do that. I, I came from suburban Sacramento and, um, you know, two different worlds, but met, um, you know, in college in an orientation program before college started for incoming students of color. I learned a lot from her. Uh, she, she came in very sort of, you know, coming from New York City, a, a cosmopolitan international city, internationally renowned city. She grew up 
fast. And especially with all the challenges that she had and education was her pathway out. She was a an ABC kid, a better chance. She had a scholarship to go to a school called Friends Seminary in New York, a Quaker school. And education was her pathway out of poverty. And she was on a full ride there, full full um, financial package to go to Yale as well. And she all she cared about was other kids like her and the opportunities that they didn't have and how she wanted to give them that opportunity. Kids who were wrestling with poverty, who were wrestling with systemic uh, racism, with other obstacles in their lives. And knowing that they were full of potential and that they had big dreams that she wanted to help realize she wanted to serve kids. So I followed her leap, you know, we, and we ended up uh, working for another organization called leap leadership, education and athletics and partnership in public housing neighborhoods in uh, new Haven. We lived and work in public housing neighborhoods with kids. I had this incredible group of 13 year old boys who I work with every day who challenged me and, and fulfilled me. And you know, who I love to death and Mia, you know, I always knew that she'd be an incredible publicly elected official if that's what she wanted to do. She'd be great at anything she wanted to do. Timing is and life is always part of the decisions that we make as partners. And I was the first to, to run and she supported me. And when Trump was elected in 2016, she decided it was her time to do what she always wanted to do, which is to, to serve and run as well. So she did for school board and then ran for and won the assembly seat just this, this past year. And so, you know, we talk about uh, politics, we talk about service. We talk about issues all the time. We love doing that. It's what something we, it's a passion that we both share. And then our kids, as we try to create a, you know, a better world for those now and those that will come, we always want to do the best for them. And, you know, we're, we're, trying to create a new world for them while we're struggling with the challenges of today. You know, each kid is different and they're not all, haven't all been on smooth paths their whole lives, facing different challenges at different times. And those are all issues, you know, we care about our kids and we care about every Californian's kids and every kid in this state and this nation want to make a a better world for them. And my kids inspire me when they walk out of class as part of the climate strike or when they uh, join a, a rally to say, we want, we don't want to have to live active shooter drills in our classes or have active shooters in our schools. You know, my, my oldest daughter, her, her high school was shut down because of a threat of an active shooter. And as parents, you can imagine what the, that call feels like when you're told that that's happening in real time. And so everything I do, I, I ask myself, is this something, is the, the decision I'm going to make on this something I can explain to my parents, my social justice activist parents as to something that is the right thing to do? And is it something that I could tell my kids I did with pride about what their father did? And that, 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 that I think keeps me focused on what matters and it keeps me um, focused on doing the right thing. I'm thankful that Mia decided she wanted to serve. I think we're all better for it. She is openly and universally called the better Bonta in and around our district and in Sacramento. Uh, <laughs> she has leadership of the assembly seats considerably from its prior assembly member in a short period of time. But I, th- I think, you know, I think that those lived experiences are super important for leaders and those people close to you that you love and that you want to make proud, that, that you want to believe in you and that you believe in. Thinking about what they think about what you do is always an important g- guiding um, light in the work that we do. No, I was, I'm still cracking about the better Monta. You're pretty great yourself, Rob. All good. <laughs> <laughs> And I respect that. I was also just thinking of, wow, when I was 17, I didn't even commit to a college, let alone you two, just committing to life partners right then and there. (laughs) Well, Mia didn't make it easy for you, did she? I mean, you had to woo her a little bit or... (laughs) 
Oh yeah, no, I was struggling. You guys, you, you. I mean, I, I came to campus and I was had a mullet and I had a fanny pack. That both Those things I, I still maintain were were very cool at the time, although hard to believe now. Uh, I wore flip flops with socks. I was kind of like my soccer gear that I wore as a as an athlete. So the one thing I, I do I do credit her with among many things she uh, she's amazing and phenomenal in so many ways. But the ability to see potential when it's really hard to see. <laughs> she saw <laughs> deep down a, a glimmer of possibility one day um, becoming something a, a little better than what, than what she found when we met her. That's hilarious. I know. God, that was it. Buy low, sell high, something like that, according to stocks. My partner <laughs> will yeah. talk about that. He'll be like, I saw potential in you when you had these like chunky bangs. And I'm like, that's not. <laughs> okay. So I can, I very much relate to that, <laughs> AG. Totally. Um, but something that really struck me um, when you were talking about, you know, obviously me and your partner and your children who are now, you know, I guess old enough to partake in these, you know, um, climate change demonstrations, other awareness about social justice. Maybe I was a little naive, like I'm still in my mid twenties, but next week is the one year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings. And it was, it's still very mind boggling to me that I'm, you know, quote unquote old enough to remember these life changing events, you know, like people will always say like, where were you when 9-11 happened? You know, where were you when X event happened? Leap is in its 40th year and it's the same year that, you know, the, the killing of Vincent Chen and all these other big anniversaries as well. And so it's talking about the violence against our API community, a lot of the narrative is like, you know, history will repeat itself. And some folks push back, like, does it have to necessarily repeat itself the way it has? But then on the flip side, it's this idea of generational leadership for, so just for some context, Leap's 40th anniversary, our theme is ancestors in action, a generational cycle of leadership. And I think that has just been such a I guess almost accidental theme in this episode because some tragedies, sometimes it feels generational. Like my mom's generation will have certain tragedies. My generation, if I have kids, they'll have something too. And it can be very daunting. But at the same time, there's almost, I don't know if it's comfort. Perhaps it is this comfort of, well, whatever happens to the next generation, they will have the opportunity to stand up and stand for what they believe in. But I would just love to hear your opinion on that, AG. Like as someone who, you know, has had such a generational experience with leadership from your parents to you now to your children. And like as a public service leader, you know, like you were mentioning as a parent, one can only imagine how it feels when your child's school is it has told you that there's an active shooter. But I think something really special about you and like a very small group of folks is that you are legislators and you can actually enact policy to change it. And I just wonder if that is that like a clear distinction in your mind? Is there like one side of you that views issues in a certain way? Like this is, you know, Rob Bonta as the parent, this is Rob Bonta as attorney general. And is there ever a distinction between them? Yeah, thank you. You know, just to, to one of your points made in, in, in your question around history and being destined to repeat itself, I don't, I don't think that 
we should see that as that's something that's preordained and predestined and, and there's nothing we can do about it and that it's futile to try. You know, that's the whole sort of spirit of my parents and commitment to public service is to changing the trajectory uh, of, of history and to use MLK's words, you know, to bend uh, the arc of, of history towards justice and, and to change what has been so that we don't repeat some things that don't bear repeating and that we learn uh, from the past, that we don't erase it. We must remember it, painful as it is, in order to avoid it, to remember the, the pain and damage that it created. And so my, my parents inspired me to serve and I, I you know, it was my dream to do my best to carry their legacy that they started and to pick up the baton and, and try my best and, and try to run a leg as hard and as fast as I could in the way that I could, you know, with, with whatever abilities that, that I had and, and whatever the moment um, provided for me. And and for me, that's been being in elected office. And I think it's always so important to, to remember who you are and, and where you came from, the, the struggles that you endured, that those around you you have endured that loved ones and even sometimes people you didn't know until you met them for the first time the most impactful thing for me as a legislator is when I hear someone just tell their own authentic story about an issue that they've confronted and especially if it's something where they've been hurt or been mistreated or it's been unfair or wrong and they're coming to me because I can do something about it and, and so I think about those people. We often think about these fancy bill numbers, A, B, this, and S, B, that, and budget plays, and there's a whole strategy for getting legislation done, but everything is done because of a certain person or people in mind to help. And it's those stories that really power me in, in the work. I, I think about that life of someone who had to suffer an indignity or an injustice and and that they won't have to suffer that anymore, or their kids won't, or the next person won't, and that we're, you know, maybe brick by brick, brick by brick and slowly building the foundation for, you know, a better society, a more fair society, more just, more equal. And we're learning from some of the, the problems that we see. And it's the whole idea of turning pain into action and, and turning it into change. And so personal stories are powerful. You know, uh, remembering the struggles that I went through or that my kids are going through or that my mom endures as an immigrant or whatever it may be, they're inherently connected. They cannot be disconnected. They're tethered with an unbreakable bond because we are, we bring ourselves to our work. You know, we we bring our our lived experiences, you know, collectively over our lives to the work that we do. We can't be anything else besides who we are. So that automatically determines the kind of leader that that we will be. So, you know, there's not a difference between dad Rob Bonta or husband Rob Bonta or son Rob Bonta or brother Rob Bonta and AG. It's, you know, all part of the same person who's guided by lived experiences and a desire to make change based on those. Rob, switching gears a little bit, I, I think for all of us, Kat and I are both Vietnamese and I know our immigrant experience really shapes who we are and the, and the careers and the choices that we make in terms of how we spend our time. But we also run into people who don't have that experience, right? Who don't identify with their, their API identity or are just exploring that. What advice do you have or practical advice for people who are beginning to understand their identity? They, they want to do something. They've been following all the the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, but don't necessarily know what to do, what would be your advice for them? 
And their API or, or not API? Both. I mean, I think that we live in a world where everybody has power, what they could do. I think for the API person or a lot of more people, like very indicative of your family, people are multicultural. They have several different, you know, identities. What would be your advice for them? You know, I, I think that my advice is that everybody can bring something positive to the table to, to help with an issue. It, it, and if you feel something is wrong and you feel you want to act, then you have a role. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, not API, but you're an ally and you feel it's wrong what's happening to the, what's happening to the API community. Or it doesn't matter if you're you're not an immigrant and uh, not an API immigrant. Your own experience is your experience and it's more than enough. And you don't need to have had a certain experience to be able to contribute to a solution. It's as long as you have a heart that feels that this is something that's wrong and then you have a desire and an energy and a motive to do something, then you can. And and if other people push back or don't want to accept you or invite you into certain rooms, that says more about them than it says about mm-hmm. you, because we need all of us to address the challenges uh, that we're facing. And certainly in moments of, of, of deep pain, when APIs are being targeted, API women are being murdered because of who they are, we need all hands on deck mm-hmm. to help f- push back and fight back. And so e- everyone should be welcome mm-hmm. to that effort. And sometimes people know they have a feeling that they want to do something, but they don't know what to do. I recommend you reach out to someone who you trust um, or an organization that is trusted and and connect with them to seek guidance on the exact steps that you could take. You know, it, it's help looks like a lot, of, a lot of things. And during the ongoing incidents that are, you know, just so painful across the nation and, and, and in California, Everybody has found they could do something. We have corporations who are mm-hmm. uh, exhibiting corporate responsibility and donating to community-based organizations who are doing incredible work so they can scale that work mm-hmm. and help victims heal and prevent hate crimes and hate incidents from happening. We have CBOs who are, you know, who do this, who are doubling down on what they do mm-hmm. and being the, the, the trusted support of services to the API community that they have always been and more. We have just, you know, everyday people who, you know, incredible story in Oakland about a individual who just said, I, I, I don't know what, I know I want to help. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to go to Chinatown and start escorting um, Asian seniors. And if anyone else wants to come, why don't you sign up on this website and we'll do mm-hmm. it together. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, that was the, the birth of an incredible organization that helped just built out of love mm-hmm. and, and, and care and, and meeting the moment. Mm-hmm. And so everybody can do something. And if you don't know what, then there's people who, who you trust or organizations that you trust that can help you. I don't know. I always feel very powerless and empowered all at the same time. A lot of feelings in the last two years, as I'm sure many of our listeners and so the people I'm talking to can relate. It's often, often this comparison of the last two years, it's not just the pandemic of COVID-19, it's also like an, a pandemic or epidemic of, you know, anti-Asian API hate. And I think often there is such a focus on like, is this a hate crime or is this an act of violence? Both are if equally horrendous. It's hard to capture in nuances, like what is worse, quote unquote, when in reality, it should be more focused on the community, as you were saying, AG. And it just makes me wonder, 
as I mean, I guess it's up to depending on where you're at. COVID cases are a little bit easier to understand, maybe a little easier to say, oh, clearly there is a spike or like, oh, clearly there is a decrease because of the booster or the vaccine. It's much more convoluted when it comes to anti-Asian and other forms of API hate. And I know your administration is trying very hard to categorize, you know, like, what is this hate crime? Like, how do you respond to it? And within the mix, I guess I'm just so curious, like, how does one navigate through that? Because, you know, it's an emotional reaction sometimes of like, this could have been my grandmother, this could have been my sister, this could have been my dad. And that's probably as we talked about families so connected to us that it causes us physical pain when it's someone else. But as you know, public servants or people who just care or organizations that realize that they have power to change something, how how is it navigating that? Like, why is it so hard for folks to report these hate crimes? Is it because sometimes they're just deemed as violence? And how do we how do we really tackle this convoluted issue? Yeah, you know, a, a lot of pieces to, the, to that question, and I, I appreciate you asking them. I, I think part of why there's not as much reporting as we might expect or hope for is, I think, because of a lack of trust is is, is a part of it. Some folks d- don't know who to reach out to. And, and when we saw the Stop API Hate hotline come online, they got more calls than anybody, more than law enforcement, more than others, because they were, you know, trusted, community-based leaders who had earned that trust over years, building it. You know, trust is earned and built over time. and And so they were someone who people felt comfortable reaching out to. I think some people also maybe don't report because they're not, I think they could be worried about retaliation. For for example, if they're they're undocumented, that's always a concern when reaching out to law enforcement, even if you're the victim or someone you love is the victim. Some aren't confident they're going to get sort of the, you know, trauma-informed, culturally competent care that they need with appropriate language access, if if that's all something that they need. So it's it's complicated. And, and multifaceted and layered. I don't think there's one answer to, to, to any of it, but all, all I think help understand the issue a little more. And and it is also deeply personal for the whole API community. You know, the, every one of these incidents, people saw themselves or someone they loved in their immediate family as the victim. And so it's a shared trauma. It's a community trauma that when someone is attacked because of who, who they are, because of their race, because of their ethnic identity, they're not just attacking a, an individual. They're attacking a community. And the community feels that attack. And that's why it's so painful. And so sort of through that all, while we are sort of, you know, in, in this is what I told my staff throughout COVID is like, we are living through the same challenges as our constituents and our constituents need us. So we need to step it up. We need to do our best. We need to fight through the, you know, the personal challenges that we're, that we're facing in our own lives and be there for the people who need us. That That's what we sign up for. That's our job. And it's not easy because I do see that every one of you is, is having a hard time too. And, and so as API leaders, community-based organization of community-based organizations or, or elected officials, it's the same thing. We're, we're hurting and we need to step up. 
because you know th this is the moment where we need to rise and show our resilience and show our leadership and you know unfortunately hate is not and the forces of hate attacking communities is 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 not something that's new but neither is joining together rising up and and responding in a way that helps pr provide healing and prevention and the issue so it's been a year full of, of pain it, you know a year plus full of pain in many ways and every image just feels like another punch in the gut um, when you see someone or you hear about someone who's been attacked or hurt uh, because of because they're Asian. But, you know, in, a midst, in the midst of the pain that we've seen a lot of more visibility for our API community, not only in politics with your um, appointment to the AG role, but also in our media and education. So I, I feel very proud, you know, despite the pain that we've seen and the anniversary of the Atlanta shooting. I mean, that that's something that's very personal to me. But I think there's so much to celebrate and then so much more work to be done. We're kind of talking about the leaps of faith that we've taken in our lives. The name of our podcast is The Leap Podcast, just like the organization that you, you you know, that we're all a part of, but you were once also a part of in college. What leap of faith have you made, you know, where you had to trust, you had to kind of trust something or take a risk. And if you can share that story with us to kind of inspire us to kind of push forward, because I think that's something that's very API. We Sometimes we don't push forward, we, or we're, we're risk adverse. So if you can share with us, you know, a time when you took a leap of faith, where you took on a risk that you may not have otherwise, had you not, you know, taken that leap. Yeah, for sure. And and let me just say on your final point about the pain leading to more visibility and other positive outcomes. I couldn't agree more. It's been full of stories of inspiration and resilience and more visibility, more education, more solutions. You know, out of pain has risen a lot of very positive forward movement in terms of uh, solving the, the, you know, the, the underlying challenges. So couldn't agree more. You know, as for leaps of faith, I'll, I'll share two that are related. One, one general, one specific, and both related to my ultimate final decision to actually decide to run for for elected public office. I've been in elected office since 2007. And so it's been, what's that, 15 years? And I started late-ish, uh, I guess, for, for, you know, my first office, I it was when I was 37. And it was something I had thought about and I've got, I went to training programs for it. And I, I was not sure it was gonna be the right thing for me. I wasn't sure if it would lead to the ability to do what I wanted to do, which is help people and make lives better. I, again, I, I wasn't sure if it was gonna be gridlocked or, or difficult or overly partisan or people with ulterior motives instead of a motive to, to help other people. And then I worried a lot about my family. I, I didn't know what risk I was gonna put them in, how if I would be pulled away, what it meant for our family's privacy and my own. And then I just finally decided to do it. And, and, and all those things just fell away as, you know, things in your mind that are created possibilities or, or problems that can prevent you from doing something. And they were replaced by just the beauty and the purity of, of different people that I work with every day who just wanted to, to help others and, and brought their own views and ideologies, sometimes views and ideologies I didn't agree with, but, but came with a belief in wanting to help. Their outcome was the same. Maybe the way that they wanted to get there wasn't. And I saw that even more in the assembly when just saw some really beautiful, good-hearted people who are from quote-unquote red seats and from different communities, not 
the urban Oakland, uh, East Bay area that I'm from, but from rural areas or from inland areas or Central Valley areas. And they all wanted to, to help too. And so I think I, it was something in my mind that kind of can paralyze you. And who knows if it was strong enough to stop me from doing it. I'm, I'm grateful that I took the leap and with all those worries, not knowing what the outcome would be, but hoping that it could be something special. And it's been, it's been that and more. And then um, related to that was the decision to seek and accept the appointment to be attorney general. I'd been an assembly member for my incredible district of half a million people and taking on the AG's role, especially given some of the incredible people that have occupied the position before from you know Kamala Harris to Jerry Brown to Javier Becerra. It would be incredibly huge shoes to fill. And you know we all have our own self-doubts and I'm no exception. And so I didn't know if I could, if I would be up for the task, if I could do the job, if I could fill those shoes and be there for people who needed it, especially during all the challenges that we were facing from anti-API hate to COVID to rises in gun violence. Now we're seeing rises in some crimes in, in, in some areas. And so but I decided to do it and, and it was part of what I was always hoping to do was help as many people as I could, impactful ways that I could and took that leap as well. And Again, thankful for the opportunity and privilege of serving in this role. And uh, people have asked me, what keeps you up at night at this role? And, and the only thing that keeps me up at night is the question, am I doing enough every day to help the people who need me? And because there's, there's someone told me a long time ago, when you elect an office, you can't do everything. They said, you're going to have to pick one or two, maybe three issues, and then leave the rest for others. And I never listened to that. I always felt if I could work harder or fight more or, um, you know, uh, roll up my sleeves a little higher, I could do, and I could one, even if it wasn't one of those three pre-decided issues, then I would do it. Why wouldn't I do it? And and so we, we touch on every important issue in the AG's office, and I want to just make sure that I'm doing everything I can with every tool in the toolkit to help everyone who needs our help. Yeah, Rob, I, I absolutely agree. We could always do more every day. And that's a great that's a great way to kind of look at things, especially when there's so many injustices and so many opportunities as well. There we could always do more. Absolutely. So that's a keeps that keeps the fire going. There's always more to do. There's always, you know, more people out there who could who could benefit from the support of our office and our service. And so gonna keep getting after it. Thank you.